You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Master Sergeant Michael Kidd. Master Sergeant Kidd is an experienced explosive ordnance disposal leader with over 16 years of EOD service. And I'm excited to talk to him about the EOD community and how EOD in urban environments presents unique challenges and requirements. Master Sergeant, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, John, for having me on. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with some real basics, just in case our listeners aren't familiar what explosive ordnance disposal or what we'll say from here on out EOD is. What is EOD? So yeah, so you, you hit it on the head. So explosive ordnance disposal, EOD, go by multiple names, either specialist, technician, or operator. So what that is basically is the, the military's bomb squad. So we diffuse and you know, mitigate and neutralize explosive hazards. Now, I know EOD is a specialized field, but for our audiences, what does that training pipeline look like? How does a soldier become an EOD technician? Yes. Yeah, so the training is quite long. Roughly, it's about, I think, 37 weeks now. It fluctuates based off of requirements, if you will, but roughly it's stayed around 36 weeks. And that's after, of course, basic training. We do have reclasses that come in from other MOSs, other jobs within the uh, the Army specifically. And so what it consists of is they do a like a pre-course. It's eight weeks. It's at Fort Lee, Virginia, and then transition down to Eglin Air Force Base, which is down in Fort Wallen Beach, Florida. And that's roughly about 28 weeks. The uniqueness with that is you're down there with Navy, Air Force, and the Marines. So it's a it's a multi-service school that's ran by the Navy down there at Eglin. And they all get taught, all get certified, all get uh, you know awarded the EOD badge down there at Eglin. I think I was tracking that, that most of the training, initial training happens down in Florida. What does that look like? What do you become certified in? So yeah, so there's multiple departments down there at Eglin. It starts with like the basics in the demolition. You've got multiple ordnance that you're taught on. So when you talk about ordnance, like bombs, bullets, grenades, there's, so there's multiple ordnance that they're taught on down there. And then you're also taught chemical weapons, a little bit on, on chemical and biological weapons down there. Then you get into improvised explosive devices down there. It's pretty hard and has a pretty high fill rate. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it is complex down there with all the different departments. Nutrition rate, as they call it, is, uh, is, is pretty high. You're basically learning how to disarm, disable, make neutral, um, everything from a grenade to what? 500-pound bomb. What's the uh, limitations? Yes. So you said it. So yeah, it's everything from small to like a hand grenade to grams and ounces of explosives like detonators. Everything from dealing with that all the way up to, yeah, 500-pound bomb to 1,000-pound bombs, guided missiles. So it's an extensive pipeline that they go through when you're looking at all the facets of, if you think of military ordinance out there, and we don't just deal with U.S. military ordinance, but we deal with foreign ordinance as well. And then training on how to, uh, you know, identify it, how to, you know, safely maneuver around it due to all the different safeties that are out there. And then also how to safely remove it out of that area. So whether it's in a field or it's in an urban environment, we need to make sure that we are able to identify it neutralize it and safely mitigate it and reduce it, whether it's by other explosives or by other means to render it safe and to remove it from the area. So you graduate the schoolhouse, very long, very tough, make it through it. Congratulations. Now you're an EOD technician, you have an EOD badge, and you go to an EOD 
organization. So once you get to the unit, what are you qualified to do and what's your continual training? I know there's gates even after you, you know, just like a soldier, make it through AIT and get to your unit and you can do some basic functions, but there's a lot more training you have to do. So yeah, so now jumping into once you get to your unit, it's usually a company you go to that falls underneath a battalion, which falls under an EOD group, which is a brigade level. That EOD technician within the company is a basic EOD technician, uh, still wet behind the ears, if you will. And he or she, because it is male, female driven MOS job, is they have to learn, kind of regurgitate everything they just learned in the past 37 weeks of training. And then now it's like implementing it. So then you need to learn kind of the area specific, if you will, because if you just, we can get into different jobs and we will, when you talk about CONUS, continental United States, and the no CONUS overseas in like a combat environment or a non-combat environment, if you're you know stationed in like Germany or Korea, different things that get involved. But the mission, when you get there, the training, because there's certain things within the States that you can and can't do here. And then it changes based off of ROE when you're overseas. Yeah, I think you highlight something that I didn't know, but you have this ongoing mission that I don't think not everybody knows about. So you could have an EOD tech who graduates to school, reports to his unit, and there is a stateside mission, an on-call mission that the EOD community gets called from any state that they're covering. And if it's a certain type of, what is it, ordinance or something, they get called and have to respond to that stateside emergency. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so talking about training and then now transitioning into like the, the mission, the job. So we'll, we'll start with like the United States job, the stateside job, if you will. Very similar to like MPs in the military, military police, how they work. They still have like a stateside job. So they're patrolling here and then they go overseas and they're doing policing functions over there. So us, we're essentially like the firefighters. We get called out again, the bomb squad of the United States military. So yeah, so our job essentially really doesn't change. The parameters in the environment is what changes. So that mission, again, going back to the CONUS, involves those calls out to the local populace, supporting the local police department and federal agencies, and then also uh, the range support. So we support that as well. So if soldiers are training, they get a dead fire grenade or a round doesn't go off, whether it's in a, you know artillery round or you know dead fired munition, then we go out there and support our own, if you will. So yeah, I think in my back of my mind, I kind of knew, especially since I was a, an old infantry mortarman, the mortar round doesn't go off, it's in the tube, back away, call EOD. I didn't really realize two states away, police find grandpa has a you know World War II grenade in his basement, and then there's a military unit that's getting called and traveling three or four hours to go deal with that. Yeah, I have uh, multiple stories uh, that get a little more interesting too. If, if it's not just those military munitions, you get people you know, within parameters, of course, this doesn't happen all the time because there's rules and regulations to it all. But being like in old mining countries, you'll get called out to like civilian explosives. Of course, again, there's rules and regulations. You got to get different authorities for that. But spawning out to those, again, grandpa died, they're cleaning up the house and he has a an old shed full of oozing dynamite from way back when that causes all different kinds of concerns. But yeah, it's uh, it's pretty wild if you think about it. And then another, again, talking about unique missions, one of the other missions we do stateside, along with everything else we're doing, training, getting ready for combat missions, we support the Secret Service, State Department, and other federal agencies. So again, anywhere that uh, anybody important goes to, uh, we're going to be there as well to ensure that it's safe for them to be there. 
infantry guys worried about getting staff duty or something, but hey, you're, you're on call. You're on a VIP mission to go support the Secret Service and clear an area before so-and-so arrives or something. Is there just a shortage in the world for bomb technicians? So I, I think so, especially in the Army. I know we have shortage. Um, I would say, yeah, worldwide. If you think about it, ultimately, it kind of makes sense. Like, who in the right mind would want to do this? My wife constantly says that you know, we're, we're probably a little insane, if you will, or maybe totally insane because we understand what we're dealing with you know, based off of the amount of training that we get. But yeah, I, I think ultimately, it's not a job that most people do for a long time. It's a high, high-risk job dealing with the complexity of, of devices that are in some of these areas, the unpredictability of these devices, that's when it's tough. And knowing what you're doing is, I would say, probably 90% of it. And then there's that 10% that we call Murphy that's just going to jump on you, and there's absolutely nothing you can do. I think one of the other misconceptions, and I, and I probably had it, is you see EOD technicians doing a walk on a, a suspected device and assume that they're protected in their bomb suit. But I know from you know, just from knowing on how actual limited amount of protection that suit actually provides on a high explosive. Yeah, yeah. Everything has its capabilities, right? So when you look at protection, if you will, there's only so much that something can protect. When you think about it, if you look at it like it from an explosive realm. When you look at an explosive and PPE, if I want to defeat some kind of PPE, some personal protective equipment, I'm just going to add more explosives. And then if I want to defeat that more explosives, I'm going to add more PPE. So then, yeah, when you think about the, you know, the bomb suit and going down, it protects, it mitigates, and it reduces when you think about that. It all depends on the explosive and explosive effects of that type of device. Also, the explosives used in that device, they have different chemical properties and science mumbo jumbo that talks about how blast waves propagate and then higher brisance and all these other fancy words. So if you think of just like on the movies and you think of TNT or dynamite, you see the dynamite in, in old mining movies and stuff, you have what's called like a bear charge, meaning it doesn't have a container. It's just explosive. So then with that, it has blast. And so with blast, it has a positive and negative pressure which does equal damage to internal organs. So you have eardrums, those soft tissue organs, you know, your eyeballs, things like that. It, it ruptures through that and can maim or cause reputable damage that, that you might not see. And then you talk about like TBIs as well. So the brain's very sensitive as well. So with the bomb suit, you know, it protects you a certain amount, but, uh, you know, it's not going to protect, you know, against that blast. How an explosive works and the device that works, whether it's a fragmentation producing device or a blast producing device, ultimately, if, if something wants to destroy you and kill you, it will. And nothing's going to stop that. Yeah, for sure. And I think most people get the high risk aspect of it. Okay, so let's get into the meat. You guys, the Urban Warfare Project podcast. I know that you've been doing EOD for a long time. And like you said, you, you have multiple combat tours. I was wondering if you could maybe tell a couple of stories that have a unique urban aspect to it and how the urban presents unique situations or challenges or issues that maybe we don't think about in the army writ large. Yeah, absolutely. And like any other military operation, doing EOD operations within an urban area is absolutely simple, right? Absolutely not. But <laughs> but when you when you think about it, like Especially so one of the things that kind of molded me and, and I learned a lot, and I know you've had podcasts on Solder City, 
the infamous Sadr city in Iraq, they're in Baghdad. That is a dense urban environment. So I think the biggest things for EOD needs to understand is the physical characteristics of urban areas. It requires us to think about the terrain in a different way. So when you think of like an urban area, you think of super surface, interior, exterior surface, and then the subsurface. So when we look at EOD, all of our expertise, all of our concerns revolves around the explosive hazard. So when you look at that, you're looking at the the multiple dimensions that an urban area has. So when you think of the explosive effects, we have to look at the safety that goes involved, especially in an urban environment. Totally different if you're out like in a flat land, there's less things to worry about. You just get rid of the explosive hazard. You have to mitigate some blast and frag and that's it you know, for yourself. But Sauter City was unique just because the fact that the blast over pressure we spoke about before, the positive and negative, the effects that it has on the structure, and then ensuring that like, what's the the contents of that structure? Is there personnel involved in that structure? The fragmentation that goes involved when you're mitigating a device or, you know, countering a, a device or you're you're trying to reduce it and it goes off, you know, which that's a possibility as well. You can have a high order detonation. And then also something too is thinking about the enhancers in the area. So enhancers, what we think about is extra like fuel. When you think of like a, a gas station, you know, that causes secondary explosions petroleum, oil, and, and lubricants, you know, is a concern as well within the urban environment. Vehicles, like tires on vehicles, a lot of people don't know that under high extreme pressure, they detonate. So it sounds like a, an explosion and people are like, oh my gosh, something just blew up. Another thing that people don't think about as well is what's called ticks and tims, which are toxic industrial chemicals and toxic industrial materials. So another concern within Sauter City is, you know, the industrial complexes within that area, you know, and then you don't have OSHA regulations like you do back here. So that stuff was just like sitting out, spilling out. And so if you detonate something, those materials can interact with that explosion and cause grave consequences, if you will. So definitely a concern. But one of the things I think that's good for EOD technicians in an urban area, different than non-urban, you know, an open area, is when we do those post-blast analysis, those events that something has already blown up, and we're doing a uh, kind of like a CSI type stuff, going there and, and picking up the parts and pieces and figuring out what happened, what caused this, how do we how do we stop it? Those type of things, those walls and buildings in those confined areas collect that evidence. So it makes it a little bit easier just with those backdrops, if you will. I mean, talk about urban environment, concealment is so much easier there. Just using the, uh, the urban terrain is ideal for adversaries. Everything from just the buildings, the structures, the, the walls, wires going to the buildings. That was a huge concern in Sauter City because you had so many, again, going different different standards from, you know, here in the States to, to over there in Iraq. You had wires leading to buildings. So you didn't know if there were power lines, if they were cable lines, internet lines, or if they were, you know, command wires going to IEDs, you know, on the other end of Trigger Man. So having those, that was uh, giving us kind of false positives, if you will. And then vehicles, stationary vehicles, whoever's vehicle, you know, the local populace's vehicles sitting there. You don't know if it's a stationary vehicle, a born IED, or if it's just, you know, just somebody's vehicle. Um, so that causes some concern. Avenues of approach are masked as well. How you're coming at IEDs when we supported uh, a route clearance out there in Sauter City, it's how we were maneuvering around those streets, trying to safely do it. but. All those concerns. 
But I can definitely see, and I don't know if most people think about that, but you, if a device is found, you have to add explosives onto that device. It, it could make a bigger explosion than than it actually the device actually intended. I know you want to what they call low order dead it. You don't want it to fully explode, but there are chances that in order to safely remove something from the environment, you have to actually explode it in the environment. In an urban environment, the, the complexity of that, all those different aspects you were mentioning from not knowing what's inside of buildings that could compound explosions to not knowing what's in vehicles. I mean, I think the classic example now will always be Beirut where somebody's storing hundreds of pounds of ammonium nitrate. Nobody knows about it and it explodes and it was just stored in a warehouse. The, the ridiculous, but you, in these urban environments, you're never going to know. Absolutely. So yeah, it goes back to that whole concealment thing. Concealment is so easy because it's it's part of the environment. So all you got to do, and that's what they were doing as well in Solder City. Uh, we supported route clearance to place the, the gold wall. I know you spoke about that in one of your other podcasts, but we supported the clearance of the IEDs in order for them to place those walls and then also to establish like safe areas. So at a rotational period, I was on one team, so I would essentially go out with a route clearance and we would maneuver along X route, if you will, clearing these IEDs. I think the most that I found in one night was like six or seven, everything from like EFPs, explosively formed penetrators, to artillery rounds just sitting there out in the the road. The, The adversaries would put them in sheds, put the device from the backside. So as we're passing through it on the front side, it just looks like a shed, but there's an IED, like an EFP or an artillery round inside there. And then they would run a command wire from the back of that that shed to one of the buildings, let's say like a two or three story building. So they have a vantage point to be able to see us coming for miles. We're creeping along and then they have the concealment of that area. They would have the advantage on us. And without other assets and enablers, if you will, and, and military uh, tools, they, they'd have the upper hand on us. But that's where it goes back to that that false positive of seeing those wires and then uh, being adaptive and identifying that and then doing additional TTPs, if you will, to, to mitigate those. I actually do a lot of post-conflict research and work with post-conflict organizations and this, the, the bomb disposal after conflicts are so huge, depending on what you know conflict you're talking about and how hard that is in the urban environment where you have populations that want to move back and there's all these either aerial dropped or IEDs. You're talking months, if not years, to fully discover and then safely remove explosive ordnance in urban areas. Yeah, that's a whole, gosh, we could definitely spend hours on talking about humanitarian aid or, or reduction of explosive hazards in a, in a post-combat. Yeah, my last deployment to Kuwait, you know, dabbed in that a little bit of, uh, you know, looking at the, the, the conflict, you know, in Syria and then also in Iraq. But yeah, that's in an urban area. Yeah. Those people that are moving back in, if if those houses or those structures, those complexes were used to house, let's say, you know, weapons, you know, let's just say a bunch of IEDs are in there, or they were using that facility to make HME homemade explosives. Then you've got, it's kind of like similar to like a meth lab that you think of back here in the States. You can't just let a family move back in there. You have to clean that house or sometimes burn it down because it's so hazardous that you don't want somebody to move in there. It's not just the explosive, but the chemical residue that's left is bad. But yeah, it's months and years it takes to, to clean up these war-torn countries, especially if they're if demolished by rubble and then digging out rubble, but then underneath there's explosive hazards. A lot of safety concerns when you talk about an urban environment. Absolutely. 
Yeah, so you have a high demand situation like that, but you have a, a very scarce specialized individuals that can get that out of there and then by the amount of work that needs to be done versus how much capacity there actually is. And I think the Beirut bombing, which if anybody hasn't seen it on TV, really exposes to how the urban environment, the, the actual physical structures can amplify an explosion. So, you know, you got broken glass for miles. The blast is being funneled through that physical environment. And I don't know if I ever thought about that in the moment, but having talking to you and you know, the fear of a houseborn IED, but even a surface laid one, how the physical environment funnels that overpressures, it, it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that was uh, those those slow videos that they have showing that uh, that blast uh, propagating through those other structures and then miles away and then people being affected. It's like, it's like wind. That blast is just almost blowing people over. I think there was a lady that was taking pictures, her wedding pictures, and there's a video of her taking these pictures in the blast wave miles away, almost topples her over. And it's so violent, just it coming through that area. It's something that, again, that we as EOD technicians, it causes those complexities of trying to understand our environment and then mitigating that hazard that was put there by you know the adversary, by the bad guy, and then ensuring that we don't cause catastrophic damage to critical infrastructures, you know, hospitals, communication, those critical infrastructures or those no target locations, if you will, in those buildings, schools. There's been times that they, they use schools as a weapon storage facilities, if you will, or HME manufacturing facilities. So yeah, it's just hard for an EOD technician. I don't believe that if the normal, I guess, individual, the populace understands the complexity when it comes to something like this. I think most people conceptualize finding a bomb. I don't know if they conceptualize the amount of decisions that go into what to do with it, the risk levels, risk to the technician, the risk to the environment, if it needs to be exploded on site, the amount of complexity, like you said, subsurface infrastructure. And that's why I wanted to highlight with this podcast, the complexity of the task in this environment. Yeah. And you, you talked about like the structures. And then when you think of going back to the Beirut, the more explosives you have, the less protection that you have or the more destruction it does. And you could see it. It's just, you could be inside of a structure. So that's a, again, the concern that uh, EOD technicians have when we're doing EOD operations in a combat environment is, is you don't fully understand what's behind door number one. You could sit there and go through there and you do what you can. And that takes me to another story is I had an IED again inside Sodder City. It was outside on the road. It was targeting convoy operations. It was found. It was still so-called active, if you will, still a threat. I asked, did my thing like, hey, where's it at? They said there. I started doing my survey of the area. I'm like, okay, has the building, building's been evacuated? Is everybody out of here? And told, yep, they are by the, you know, the, the personnel on ground that found it. I double checked with like the local policing police and then also the local uh, you know, military that was there. And they said, yep, they all gave me a thumbs up. So then we tried to uh, you know, safe this device and it actually high ordered. So we tried to low order it, uh, diffuse it, if you will, and it high ordered. And it was pretty close to a building, blew out some windows, caused some damage, some, some collateral damage to that building. And we're like, oh, okay, well, thank God no one was hurt. And so as I was walking down there after we had mitigated this explosive threat, the door opens up. 
scared the living snot out of me. One, you know, I thought, well, it was a threat. It was, it was going to take me out. And then two, once I saw that it was a uh, older female, I instantly went into, I hope this person's okay. Like, are, are they okay? Then it goes into, you know, okay, I do a quick survey of the area. There's no other explosive hazards. Now we're bringing in the local populace medical treatment police to say, hey, come in here and make sure this person's okay. Thank God they were. I definitely probably scared the living snot out of them. But at the end of the day, they were safe. But you know, that concern in the back of your head of causing that civilian casualty by your actions, you know, everything you try to mitigate within that area, it's extremely difficult. And, and I hope that comes out in the complexity of this. And I always talk about this in my podcast about why urban warfare is so hard and we must train it so much is because of this. It is the most complex environment, not just the physical structures. And now we're talking about explosive ordnance in the physical environment, but urban is defined by a population. So the belief that there will not be civilians in the environment it is a myth. And that's a pretty crazy story on no matter what was done to, yep, it's good. It's all clear. And there are still civilians in the area. Well, Master and Kid, I think we'll end it there. I appreciate your time. This is a fascinating topic for me, not just in showing in the past how much explosive ordnance played into current operations. I think it'll be a major part of the future, not just in the counterinsurgency environment, but in, even in great power competition, which will enter the cities and how will explosive either you know unexploded devices that were fired at other enemy forces or purposely laid obstacles and building obstacle belts of tank mines and things like that. I think we'll always have a need for expert trained EOD technicians that have some experience and are thinking about what changes in the urban environment. 100% agree with you, John. It is. It's a real threat and an ongoing threat. And if it's not us, like we spoke about, if it's not the military EOD technician out there cleaning it up and mitigating those explosive hazards, you have civilian contractors, uh, whether they're U.S., uh, Great Britain's got some some companies out there and, and other organizations, other countries are helping mitigate this uh, this hazard within these urban environments. And it's a, it's a true concern. Absolutely. All right. Thanks a lot for your time, Master Kid. Hey, thanks for having me on, John. It's been my pleasure. It's been awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.